Our scripture for today is Genesis 15, 1 through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Dar, for reading that text for us today. Um, if this is your first time joining us, welcome to our church. Welcome to Risen. I'm Pastor Rich. And as you can see, we are going through a sermon series called Theology, Theology, uh, which is just to study the Bible's major systems of doctrine. That's, that's all that it means, right? Theo means God, ology means the study of. So it's really studying God in its major systems. Um, you know, if you understand human physiology, there are 11 major systems of the body, such as the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, and more. And so these major systems, these are essential to the body's survival and well-being. And in the same way, the Bible has major systems that are essential to our holistic survival and really our spiritual well-being. And so one of the major and essential systems we've been covering the past several weeks is this teaching, the Bible's teaching, of covenant. This word covenant simply means a committed relationship between two parties with clear conditions and consequences, and then it's sealed with an oath. Now, maybe you're wondering, okay, Rich, why do I need to learn that to be a Christian, to grow as a Christian? Well, I'm here to tell you that you are actually already living this out, okay? 
Um, I, I'm just here trying to help you become aware of it. For example, uh, when you get married, you have to sign a marriage license. You know, um, I know that marriage, married couples are always like busy trying to like get the flowers going and like they're like the photos, but and the marriage license come and they're like, oh yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, you want to read that marriage license. That's the most important part of a marriage, okay? Um, you are essentially signing a marriage covenant. According to one source, one legal source, it says the law states that you and your spouse have a legal fiduciary and very high duty of loyalty to each other, which is sealed when you sign that marriage license. That license is binding permanently. Even if one party decides to break the contract, they are both held accountable to the legal and fiduciary commitment to each other when they signed and sealed that contract. All right? Uh, so even if you decide to break that contract, you are still bound by the conditions of that contract. That is one of those contracts that you just can't get out of. That's a covenant. When you are getting married, um, you are entering into a marriage covenant. And in the same way, this, this understanding of covenant, because God calls his church his bride, uh, has the, is the most accurate understanding of what it means to be in a relation with God, okay? Um, because God has created all human beings in a covenantal relationship with him. He's created us with specific conditions. What are those conditions? To love him, to do good, to do what is right, to be selfless, ethical, courageous, compassionate, and peaceful. And when we don't do that, He's saying, you're going to bring sin and brokenness and chaos into your life, into your relationships, and into the world. You see? There's no way we can get out of that. And the most severe brokenness and the result of the breaking of this covenant is the experience of physical and eternal death. Which is why God sent Jesus to restore this covenantal relationship. By the grace of Jesus, through his sacrifice, through his death for our sins, when we place our faith and trust in him as our redeemer of this covenant, right? We're forgiven. The Holy Spirit enters into our souls and we are united back to God. And there is hope now out of this brokenness, out of the power of sin, out of the penalty and death and sting of sin towards eternal life. We could end the sermon right now, actually. That's, that's it, right? No, but uh, so for the past several weeks, what have we been doing? We've been studying the Old Testament and especially some of the major characters in the Old Testament, such as Adam and Eve, Noah. We're studying Abraham. We'll study Moses later. We're going to study the, the covenantal sign of circumcision, the covenantal sign of Passover, the Exodus, right? We're going to study these things and we're going to see that all of this, all of this points to God's covenantal faithfulness to us, ultimately in Christ, okay? And so um, here's what we see here in our text. Uh, it starts off, God comes to Abram in a vision. He says, don't, don't be afraid. Um, I am your shield. Your reward will be great. That's what Abram says. This begs the question, though, 
God made a promise to Abraham to bless him to be a blessing, to be with him no matter what. So why is Abraham afraid? Right? You don't tell someone, hey, you don't have to be afraid unless that person is deathly afraid of something. Well, right before our particular scripture passage, uh, we're reading Genesis 15 today, right before that in Genesis 14, it tells us that nine kings near Abraham go to war against each other. And Lot, Abraham's cousin, is not involved in this war, but he gets caught up in it because he lives in that area and he's taken captive. And so Abraham hears of this, right? And at great personal risk, Abraham gets involved to rescue his cousin. Abraham here, by rescuing Lot, is getting involved in some real messiness, right? Because he's standing up for the weak. And in doing so, when you read Genesis 14, Abraham is drawing fire from others that don't want him to get involved, you know? Like, hey, this is none of your business. Abraham says, this is, part, this is my business. You're, my cousin is, you've taken my cousin. And what we see here is uh, the Bi Bible scholars call this typology. Now stick with me here. Typology identifies biblical figures and events and passages that foreshadow the ultimate reality in Christ. And so the kind of justice and love and rescue that Abraham is displaying to Lot is foreshadowing the ultimate justice, love, and rescue that Jesus brings. And we'll talk more about this later, but this is not just typology because in his book, in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says this. He says, our conviction of the gospel determines our expression and witness of the gospel especially when it costs us something. Are you with me on that one? If we understand the gospel, how we live out is going to properly express that understanding, especially when it costs us something, right? It's easy to be a Christian when it doesn't cost you anything. But when you have to do what's right, when you have to forgive someone, when you have to let go of your pride, when you have to let go of your comfort and you have to serve and you have to sacrifice, hey, that's when you understand the gospel. 1 John 4, 16 puts it this way. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God lives in them. And this is Abraham, right? God's grace and love for him is getting expressed out into his life. Abraham lives in God. He's living in love. God's living in him even when it costs him something. I can only imagine as Abraham is leaving his family to go rescue Lot, what his family is thinking. Right? Whether they know if he'll come back. Now, Abraham wins this battle. And then in Genesis 14, I didn't read it again. I'm just kind of giving, I'm, I want to bring you up to speed here. Uh, in Genesis 14, one of the kings brings out bread and wine, but he was also a priest of the God Most High, Melchizedek. He blesses Abraham and he says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich." I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. And this is amazing. Here's why. Because Abraham has risked everything to save these 
other kings and their tribes. And so Abraham is technically entitled to the lion's share of the reward, right? You know, when you're at work and you're like, hey, we did all the work. <laughs> you're like, you know, uh, this is because of my team, right? We deserve the credit. That, Abraham deserves the credit. But instead, he gives a tenth to the priest of God as an offering to God, and then he only takes what would feed his men, and the rest he returns to the appropriate countries. Abraham is a righteous guy. Abraham gets involved with no ulterior expectations. You know, he doesn't need anything back. Generally in war, there are conflicting interests. And so we are not giving full due to what Abraham has just done. It is astounding what he has just done. And Abraham doesn't do this because he's like, oh, I'm going to be fine. Don't worry. Like, I've got everything I need. I've got more than enough. No, because after this, there's going to be retaliation. You bet, you, you bet there's going to be hostility. These guys are going to come back, and they're going to try to get what Abraham had rightly protected from the people that they have taken from. Abraham won a small battle, but he's afraid of the next one. Abraham is living out his faith in obedience, which always means risk and sacrifice. And this is why God comes to Abraham in the beginning of our passage, and he says, do not be afraid. I know you are scared. You did the right thing, and I know you're scared because you're wondering, are you going to be okay? And I want to remind you, Abraham, I'm your shield. Your reward will be great. Right? In other words, God is... Abraham thinks God is saying, you don't have to be afraid of your life or your security. You don't have to be afraid of those kings because I am your king. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will take care of you. And then I love Abraham. Abraham has such a beautiful relationship with God and it's my prayer that you have this relationship with God because what does Abraham say? Does Abraham say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you. No, he says, he says Lord, what are you going to give me? <laughs> That's what he says in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 2. He goes, oh, Lord, what will you give me? He says, I'm childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no offspring, right? And this is important because back then you needed offspring because in an agricultural society, you need as many children to work the land. There's no law enforcement, right? There's no uh, justice system, so you need them to fight battles. You need your children to intermarry with other families, to make alliances and strengthen your tribe. So Abraham is saying, how? How is this going to happen? Like, you're just telling me I'm going to be fine? And then God says, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And the Lord brought Abraham out and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And then Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to Abraham as righteousness. And then God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I love, I love it, right? Like It just says Abraham believed God. And then he says again, Abraham comes right back and says, wait, how am I going to possess this land? <laughs> I love it, right? He's like, I believe you. You're going to give me the kids. And then God's like, yeah, and I'm going to give you land. He's like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. How are you going to give me this land? It's 
beautiful. This faith is, 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 you see what faith is, is a relationship. It's a relationship. God isn't just a genie, you know? It's a relationship. Abraham is having this conversation with God at the same time he is doubting God because Abraham wasn't perfect. Like you and me, he struggled with doubt. Abraham asked questions to God all the time. He probably asked Sarah a lot of questions. And Sarah's like, I don't know, just, just you need to talk to God, <laughs> right? And what this means, if, if Abraham, a person of tremendous faith, struggled with doubt, it means that you're going to struggle with doubt too. Come on, right? Like, I, I, I'm nowhere close to like the faith of Abraham. And if that guy struggled with doubt, I'm going to struggle with doubt. Now, we live in a world and in a society and cultures that says, don't struggle with doubt. You must know the answer. Fake it till you make it, right? Doubt is a weakness. But what we see here is that doubt is not a weakness, right? We'll all have levels of doubt. We'll always ask ourselves, God, am I going to be okay? Am I doing the right thing? Did I marry the right person? Am I going to be able to parent all these children? How am I going to provide? Am I where you want me to be? I know you want me to love you and trust you and follow you, but can I really do this? Uh, Pastor Ian Dugid says uh, about this text, he says, uh, in regard to Abraham's doubt, what we see is God doesn't desire us to suppress our doubt or ignore our doubts. On the other hand, God doesn't desire us to be ruled by our doubts. You see, there's a tendency for us to suppress intellectual doubt and emotional struggle because we don't want to look unintelligent. We don't want to look emotionally weak. That's, 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 there's a temptation for that. There's a temptation for me. People always come up to me with questions and there's a temptation for me to not be vulnerable, to be strong, to have it put together. But when you create a church like that, you are not allowing people to be intellectually or emotionally sincere. You're, you're, you're encouraging them to be fake. And it's unrealistic. And then there's no spiritual life because the Holy Spirit only works in truth. What's the Holy Spirit going to do with fakeness and lies and cover-ups? And the truth is, everyone doubts. Everyone struggles. It may get a little bumpy at times, but if you are unable to open up about your doubts or if you are afraid of sharing your struggles, then the Holy Spirit can't work in that. And you won't get prayer because people won't know. And you won't get encouragement because people won't know. And doubt will prevail. And we'll never overcome doubt. Years will go by and we will never grow through doubt. Doubt mistrust, pain, cynicism, and hopelessness, because that's what doubt ultimately leads to. It leads to hopelessness, prevails. That's, that's what we have on one hand. But on the other hand, there's a tendency for doubt to be constant worry, right? On one hand, people are like, hey, don't, don't bring that weakness here, right? Hey, you know, you're going to be fine, you know? Those, those are bad vibes, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, but that's, that's on the one hand. People like to dismiss doubt. But on the other hand, some people... It's always doubt, always worry, right? Uh, always doom and gloom. And that is also insincere. 
Because that only sees the bad. And it ignores the wins and the victories and God's faithfulness and his provision and the gratitude and God, of God's kindness, right? You have these extremes with doubt. No one knows how to deal with doubt. And then you have these two people, if they're in a relation with each other, just fighting constantly. Because one is ruled by saying, I don't want to deal with this. This, this makes me nervous. This makes me uncomfortable. The other person is saying, this is all there is. All the while, both are trying to seek control. One is trying to seek control by ignoring doubt. The other is trying to seek control by trying to constantly convince others that failure and letdown is inevitable. Right? One is trying to seek control by ignoring uncertainty. The other is trying to seek control by absolutizing uncertainty. No one knows how to deal with doubt. But what does Abraham do? I love it. In this text, we have a very good example of how to deal with our doubt, how to deal with our struggles. What did he do? He is honest about his doubt and he expresses it to whom? To God. To God. And what does God say? Does God say, Abraham, what do you, don't, don't ever doubt me. Don't you dare question me, right? You're a weak person for doubting me. Is that what God does? No. But on the other hand, God doesn't say, Abraham, you're right. You are screwed. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you've got no hope. There's, there's, there's nothing good here for you. Everything is falling apart. This is the end for you. No, no. Church, God is gentle. He, he is gentle, us, gentle with us when he doubts. He, he is okay. Read the Psalms. It is the emotional heartbeat of the church. And I, I haven't preached on the Psalms yet. Do you know why? Because I'm so nervous to go to that place. <laughs> I'm nervous to go to that emotional vulnerability and that emotional uncertainty. I'm, I'm still nervous to tap into that and what that really means and, and unveil that. You know, I love going to Proverbs, right? Tell me what to do. But Psalms tells you how to express yourself when there is nothing more you can do. And all you can do is trust. All you can do is sing. All you can do is pray. God is gentle with us when we doubt. Read the Psalms. At the same time, he never leaves us there. This brings us to our second point, God's promise. Now, in response to Abraham's doubt, God tells Abraham, bring me a heifer, which is... Uh, is just an old English word for calf, right? A young uh, cow, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. If you jump down to verse 18, it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Um, I'm gonna unpack this a little bit, but as I mentioned before, when two people get married, they are committing themselves to each other, emotionally, physically, financially, legally right they'll put you have to put everything on the line everything is on the line like like nothing in this world it's not just a relationship it's also a contract it's both that's what a marriage is right that's a covenant relationship and contract and back then this is how they made covenants you know they didn't sign things they cut covenants that word, uh, that Hebrew word is literally, that's literally being used is they're, they're cutting. God is, 
not making a covenant with Abraham. He is cutting a covenant, you know? And God doesn't need to tell Abraham really what to do, like to cut them in half, that is, because Abraham knows what God is talking about. Oh, God is making a, he's making a contract. He's making a deal with me here. Okay, it was a common practice. And from archaeological evidence, uh, when people cut covenants in those days, they would walk through the dismembered parts, saying, if I don't hold up to my side of the deal, let me be cut like these animals. Okay? Now, you may be thinking, man, that's really harsh. It is. But at the same time, it's also because people back then took their commitments much more seriously. Some of you are like, let's go back to that. <laughs> let's go back to that. Now, whenever a covenant was cut between two parties, the lesser would usually walk through because he was the one that had to pledge loyalty to the greater. He is the one that would say, hey, I will pay you the taxes, and when you need me, when you need my army, I'll be there for you because the greater king had all the leverage. He held all the cards. But who walks through this covenant? Is it Abraham? No, it is a smoking pot and pillar of fire which always represents God in the New Testament, which is unusual because it is not the lesser one walking through the covenant. It is the greater one. God walks through this covenant. And in, 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 in essence, what God is saying is, I'm going to carry this relationship. That's what he's saying. I'm going to carry this covenant. I'm going to put my name, I'm going to put my life, I'm going to put everything, all my cars will be on the line. And so here's what we have, okay? Here's what we have. Abraham is getting afraid that he is going to be attacked by his enemies. God promises him that Abraham will defeat them and he will possess the land. But Abraham never defeats his enemies, and he never sets foot in the land. When Isaac is born, Abraham dies before Isaac even has kids. And Isaac never foot, sets foot in the promised land either, and not Isaac's children or his grandchildren. And what's interesting here, in verse 13, God tells Abraham that before they go into the land, they're going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So Abraham knows that this promise is much, much, much bigger than himself. How bigger, though? That's the question. How much bigger is this promise? Actually, it isn't till King David that God's promise is fulfilled and Israel comes into this land. And even then, it's all lost, right? When Babylon comes and takes them over. So what, is, what promise is God talking about? Brings us to the last point, the gospel. If you go to New Testament, in John chapter 8, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now that's kind of confusing because how could Abraham rejoice at seeing Jesus when Jesus came after Abraham died? What Jesus is saying is after, him, after Abraham died, from heaven, when Abraham saw my incarnation, he saw my death and he saw my resurrection, Abraham recognized that the reward God promised to him was me. 
God's promise to give Abraham a reward, you see, is not the fighting power of a tribe or the security of a land. No, God's promise to give Abraham a reward was Jesus himself. And so when Abraham saw Jesus, he finally was able to rejoice. And he was glad. There is no greater possible blessing than Jesus. Friends, we live uh, in a world where sin abounds. It abounds in the world through wars and corruption, conflict and death, but it also resides in our hearts and in our relationships. The brokenness, uh, the pain of disappointment. No matter who you are, no matter where you go, we all walk into this brokenness. And we also bring it. We also bring our own brokenness into it. And like Abraham, this causes us tremendous anxiety, causes us tremendous fear, tremendous doubt. Some of us try to ignore it, right? Others of us are constantly depressed by it. But we are reminded today here that God has made a covenant with us. And that covenant is that we would have a great reward. And that great reward is not circumstantial earthly blessing. That great reward is Jesus himself. The most loving, the most compassionate, the most gracious, the most courageous person that you are hoping to find in this world that will go to bat for you, that will always be with you and fix the ultimate problem of sin and death in this world by bringing you into his eternal and glorious home. And he does this by first forgiving you. Let me explain this. If you've ever broken someone's trust, you realize um, you are confronted with your own brokenness and your own weakness and your own guilt. And you, are no, you no longer feel righteous. You know, you're humbled. And that person's trust that you have broken also feels like you've been taken down a notch in your righteousness. And there needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be forgiveness if that relationship and that trust needs to be restored. And not just the understanding of forgiveness, there needs to be the power, the power of forgiveness, because that is really what forgiveness is. It's a power. It's a spiritual power that none of us have, that only God can give us. And what the gospel says is that power of forgiveness God has given to you through Jesus Christ. He has given forgiveness to you 
from him, and then he has given forgiveness to you for others. That's what the gospel says. And Jesus is saying, there is nothing more important in your life right now than that. Forgiveness. Jesus is saying, there is, no mu- there is nothing more precious to God than the power of forgiveness. Because we all need to realize how far, how far, how far we fall short. And we're not great as we think we are. And everyone else already knows it. We're just the last one to catch up to it. But God forgives you. And that humbles us. And all, for all the people that, has, that have offended us, that drives the anger and the chip on our shoulder that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger when we think it's going to eventually get smaller and smaller and smaller, God is saying, I have given you the spiritual power now to forgive others. Because it's not your accomplishments that's going to get this chip away. It's your heart and the spirit and the power of forgiveness. Let me just end with this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about how Abraham's faith was uh, rooted as an anchor into God's covenantal love to him. Right? The author of the book of Hebrews is using the metaphor of an anchor to describe our hope and what we are placing our hope in and where we are hooking our anchor into. Because anchors, what do they do? They hook into something that we think is unmoving. If it's not hooked into something that is unmoving, then it's just floating around in the water. And if you're floating around in the water, water ebbs and flows. And so your hope and your soul, your identity, your purpose, your meaning, your relationships, they ebb and flow. Hot and cold. And I just want to challenge you very, very, very gently. Where are you hooking your anchor into? Is it in your career? Is it in your plans? Is it just your control? Like it's gotta always be you, your control. Is it constantly insecurity? Like you just can't help thinking about that. Some of us, we hook our anchor into the affirmation of others. We constantly need other people to reassure us. And we're not doing it for Jesus. We're not doing it at the cost And what we're reading about here, as we study the theology of covenant, is that if your anchor isn't in the rock solid security of eternity, you'll always be floating. If your anchor isn't hooked into the rock solid love of Jesus for you, 
your relationships will always be floating. You need something solid to keep you going so that you don't get lost. One day your work is doing well, the next day it isn't. One day your company is doing well, the next day it isn't. One day the economy is doing well, the next day it isn't. One day your marriage is doing well, one year the marriage is doing well, you have kids, it's a little bit rough. <laughs> your kids grow, they're becoming independent, they're, they're coming into their own, you're losing control, you're losing your plans. One day your health is doing well, one day it will be taken from us. If your anchor isn't hooked into the seabed of his Christ and his eternity for you and his eternal love for you, then you'll never get to experience the Holy Spirit that can produce in you this deep joy, this deep grace, and this deep peace. And it will just, it'll change you. You'll no longer live for yourself. You'll no longer ebb and flow because your, your hope and your anchor is hooked. It's hooked into Christ. Church, just want us to ask ourselves this question today. How does Jesus and the ultimate reality that he has conquered sin and death and he is resurrected and seated on the right hand of God the Father and what he's done for you, what he's doing in your life and where he is, how does that make all the other blessings pale in comparison? Because that's what Abraham did. And that's what gave him joy. That's what he hooked his anchor into. And my prayer as your pastor is that we would hook our anchor into that same rock that Abraham hooked his anchor into. And from there, we would have the perfect joy of knowing Christ effectually applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we live in a world where everyone promises us false covenantal contracts. Right? The devil's saying, hey, you sign this, you pursue this, you're going to experience goodness and your reward will be very great. You're going to experience happiness. You're going to experience blessing. And yet, we find ourselves struggling with doubt, struggling with uncertainty, struggling with angst. We live in a time where there has never been such comfort. And yet we live in a time where there has never been such anxiety and depression and joylessness and discontentment. That's got to say something about all the covenants we've placed our hope in. And we can't, we can't get out of this ourselves, which is why you sent Jesus to come and to redeem and to reestablish and to renew and to restore this eternal covenant. This covenant where we constantly stray away from you. We try to find 
joy and security and comfort and happiness in the things of this world and we find ourselves more broken, more lost, less human, less your child. And I confess this myself, first and foremost. Oh, who can save us as Paul says himself, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this body of death? <laughs> and that was the Apostle Paul. So we come before you and we pray as your Holy Spirit comes down upon our hearts and softens us and humbles us to listen to you, to listen to your voice, to listen to what you are saying to each one of us individually and personally. And you know what we struggle with. You know what we doubt. And we pray that we would be able to surrender that to you. We pray that we can unhook our anchor out of that. And we can hook our anchor just into knowing you and following you and, and, and being faithful to you. And everything that we have, that you bless us with, is no longer the anchor. No, it is a means. It is a means to glorify the solid rock seabed of Christ so that we can help each other and help our families and help all our relationships and help our communities and this area and anyone who walks through those doors to see where they need to place their anchor in. No, it's not in the false promises and in the, in the, in the accomplishments that we have that are, that are fading quickly. It's in you. Help us to live like Abraham and to do what is right, sometimes at great personal risk and great personal cost, and to trust that you will protect us, to trust that you will provide just as you have ultimately provided in Christ. And if you have given us Christ, as Romans chapter 8 says, will you not give us all things? Will you not give us all things? Help us to have faith that you will provide for us and give us all that we need. And help us to step out in that faith and to live for you no matter what. To give our very best to you place our heart and our hope and our emotions, our opinions and our thoughts all in you. Because in Christ, that is where life is found. That is where wisdom is found. I ask this and I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.